All right, guys. Welcome to Salt City Church. It's great to have you guys here. I'm excited to be able to teach the Bible to you this morning. And we are opening up to Genesis 49 through 50, which normally when things go this crazy, your instinct as a Bible teacher is to want to teach a different passage than the one you had planned. But in God's providence, he has us, I think, in the perfect passage for this morning. One of the things that I think I feel and many of you have felt going through this is like you're completely out of control, which is actually true. We are completely out of control, but it's a circumstance like this that reminds us that we're completely out of control. And I was reminded of this probably most pointedly the other day when I took a trip to the pharmacy. So I hopped in my 2004 Honda Odyssey minivan, Ronda the Honda, went to the pharmacy to pick up a few medications. And as I was uh, coming back, I noticed that the trash cans were at the end of the driveway. And so I thought, I'm going to be a good husband, a good dad. I'm going to go ahead and get these trash cans, put them back in the garage, because you got to have the van pulled out of the garage to put the trash cans back. And so I was going to put the trash can back and I walked into the garage and I all of a sudden looked back and Rhonda the Honda was trying to run over me because in my haste what had happened is I forgot to put my van in park and so all of a sudden my van was sitting on a 45 degree angle and that 45 degree angle could only hold the van for so long. And so I look back and the van is coming at me and not only is it coming at me, it's veering towards our other vehicle. And so I just took off running straight at my van, started pushing on it and finally got it to stop after it had run right up against our other van. And so I was able to climb in the passenger side door and back it back out. And by God's grace, there was minimal damage done to the van. But to my pride, there was some damage done. And I had this realization, once again, that I really can't trust myself, that I'm really not in control. And I think all of us are realizing we can't trust ourselves. We're not in control. We can't trust our plans. We can't trust our circumstances and we can't trust ourselves. And so we're grasping for something to trust. And what Genesis 49 and 50 would remind us of is that there's one person that we can trust, and that's God himself. And what we're gonna see in this passage is that we can bank our lives on God's sovereign grace. When everything else is falling apart, we can bank our lives on God's sovereign grace. And so we're going to see that four ways that Joseph banked his life on this grace. And the first way we see that is in Joseph's theology. So kind of the crux of this entire passage is Genesis 50 verse 20. Genesis 50 verse 20 says this, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And what we see in this passage is that it's impossible to understand Joseph's behavior in these chapters 
without first understanding his theology. So theology sounds like a big word. It simply means your understanding of who God is. So we all have theology. So here's a summary of Joseph's theology in this one verse. If you sort of take the middle of the verse out, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So the evil that he's referring to here is the evil of his brothers selling him into slavery for a prophet because they hated him, which set off a course of suffering in his life that when you read the, the, through the story, it really is staggering. And so he's saying, this evil that you, he's talking to his brothers, meant against me, God meant this exact same evil for good. So that's his theology, that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And that word meant, it means that God planned and purposed the evil committed by Joseph's brothers for good. Which all of a sudden we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying that God plans evil events? And the question becomes, how can God plan evil events without being evil himself? And our minds start to spin with these realities. And so we invent other ways of interpreting the passage and we say, well, it doesn't mean that he planned the evil events for good. It means that in the end, God uses the evil for good. But if it's true that God just uses the evil for good, then the evil is actually outside of his control and God is just a responder to that evil. In one way, it might feel like we got God off the hook, but in another way, we find that God is less trustworthy than he would have been otherwise. So we got to solve the problem. How can God plan evil events without himself being evil? So think with me about this scenario for a second. Imagine that you have an only child. And your only child is sort of becoming spoiled, sort of getting all that they want, and you don't like the person that they're becoming. And so you have neighbors. Let's just say the neighbors are my family. We have five kids. And you're like, you know what? I think if I sent my spoiled child over to the Stevenson household, that that would toughen them up. And what you're imagining happening over there is that my kids are going to, at times, spit on him, kick him, hit him, maybe dump some sand down his pants. And you're imagining all of those things, but your intention in sending your child over to my house is that they would become a better person. So you can see how my kid's intention would be evil it would be to destroy your kid and put him in his place. But how your intention for your child would be good. And in a similar way, God has planned all of the events of history, even the evil things, 
with a good intention at heart, which means that even in something like this, we can trust that God has planned it, not just that he's going to use it, but that he has meant our current circumstances for good. Satan might have meant it for evil. There might be a lot of people who are taking advantage of the situation and using it for evil. But God, in his sovereign grace, that is in his kingly rule and in the kindness of his heart, has planned these events for good. That's Joseph's theology. And if we want to live the type of life that we're going to see that Joseph lived, we have to first believe what he believed. That's his theology. And then one of the evidences that we see that he believed this is Joseph's fruitfulness. So we're going back a chapter, back to chapter 49. We're looking at verses 22 through 24. This is what Joseph's dad, Jacob, says about him. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitter, bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And so Jacob, at the end of his life, right before he's going to die, he's pronouncing this blessing on his son Joseph. And he looks back at his life and he says, Your life has been a fruitful life. I don't know about you, but I didn't know what bow meant. So I had to look it up. And bow actually means a large branch. So he's looking at Joseph and he's saying, you are like a large branch that is producing lots of fruit. Now, when you think about a branch, there's really only one essential thing that that branch must do to become large and fruitful. The one thing that that branch must do to become large and fruitful is to stay connected to the tree. And we see this imagery all throughout the Bible. Think of Psalm 1, think of John 15, think of Galatians 5. We see that those who stay connected to God like a branch is connected to a tree, those are the ones that produce fruit. And we see this come out actually in the structure of this very text, because you see, Jacob says to Joseph, you're like a big fruitful branch that's producing all of this wonderful fruit. And then he immediately changes the imagery. He changes the imagery from branch branches and fruit to war. And he talks about the archers bitterly attacking him, shooting at him, harassing him severely. And we get this picture of Joseph as this mighty warrior. And we begin to ask the question, okay, this is confusing. You're not supposed to mix your metaphors. Why are you doing this, Jacob? And the reason that he's doing this is because all of us want to be warriors. We like war movies. Every little boy at some point wants to be a warrior. My little boys, they carry around their swords and their Nerf 
guns and they want to fight, they want to wrestle, they want to be warriors. Nobody that I've ever talked to wants to be a branch. Nobody wants to be a branch. Never heard of a little boy, never heard of a little girl who says, when I grow up, I want to be a branch. Here's what Jacob is saying to Joseph. Here's what God is saying to us. If you want to be a warrior for God, you have to have the humility to be a branch. If you want to be a warrior for God, you have to have the humility to be a branch. Because the warrior life comes from branch-like dependence. And so the one thing that God is calling us to do during this time is to depend on him. If there's one thing that you're going to do throughout this time, it's that you're going to depend on God. Because all the love and the courage that this season of life demands is only going to be possible if we are connected to God the way that a branch is connected to a tree. Now, not too long ago in the fall, Melissa and I had a tree trimming company come out to our house. And these guys were awesome. They were tying ropes up, throwing them over tree branches. They were climbing the tree, shimmying right up. And then they were taking different tools, chainsaws and machetes and different things, and they were cutting branches off of the tree. And let me tell you, it didn't matter if it was a small branch or if it was a big branch. Every single branch that got cut off any of our trees died. And that's because if a branch isn't connected to a tree, it loses the very life that it needs. And in the same way, for you and I, if we are not connected to God in vital relationship, we're going to die, especially in circumstances like we're in. So I want to encourage you, Salt City, get back to the basics. Maybe you just need to get outside and you need to show this branch-like dependence on God by just going for a walk, just talking to God, sharing with him what's in your heart talking to him about the concerns and the worries that you have about your job, about your finances, or about your family, about your relationships, about somebody who lives off across the country who's struggling. And you need to show your dependence on, on him just by praying. Maybe you need to get your nose out of the news, off your app, off your computer, off the TV, and you need to get your nose in the Bible and just breathe that fresh, cool air of God's word and allow all of the panic and all of the bad news that's going on in the world to replace, be replaced by the good news of the gospel. I think that's how we show this kind of dependence. And what happens is when we're dependent, we produce fruit. And that fruit will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control will actually be transformed people in the midst of the craziness of our world. So the first two things we saw are Joseph's theology and Joseph's fruitfulness. The third thing we see is Joseph's kindness. Genesis 50 verses 14 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brother and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for I, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So at this point in the story, jo Jacob, Joseph's brother, or J Jacob, Joseph's dad, is dead. And his brothers get really scared because they have done all this evil against Joseph. And they're scared that now that their dad is dead, that Joseph is going to kill them. And because they're terrified, they make up a lie. They say, hey, Joseph, dad told us right before he died that you should treat us with kindness, that you shouldn't kill us. Even though we've done all these horrible things, you shouldn't do this. And Joseph knows that they're lying. And he cares so deeply about them. But the text says that rather than being hardened and, and getting angry and saying, man, my brothers, not only did they try to kill me, now they're lying to me and they don't trust me. He just breaks down and weeps. Even though they caused so much suffering in his life, he still loves them and cares about them. And we begin to ask the question, how is that possible that he loves them and cares about them? And we actually see a couple things in the text. We see, first of all, that Joseph left the judgment to God. In verse 19, he says to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? So in other words, he's saying, I'm not the judge. I'm not the executioner. I'm not the one who's going to bring the punishment down on you. God is God. And even though you have sinned greatly against me, I'm not going to punish you for that. I'm going to let God be the one who brings justice into the situation. So you guys don't need to be afraid of me. And what he's implicitly saying is, you should be afraid of God because God's ultimately the one who's gonna hold you accountable. And then the second thing that he says is the verse that we already read, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so he not only says that God is the judge, but he also reminds them that he believes that God is absolutely in control. In other words, he doesn't believe that his brothers set the stage for his suffering, but he believes that God ultimately set the stage for his suffering. And that even though their intentions were bad, that God's intentions were good. And the result 
because Joseph believes that God is the judge and that God is in control, he doesn't have to punish his brothers emotionally or physically. He doesn't have to hate his brothers, but instead he can be kind to his brothers. And so we see at the end of the text, he says, guys, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he actually comforts them and is able to speak kindly to them. And he's able to comfort them and he's able to speak kindly to them because he believes that their behavior has actually been in God's hands. That God is the ultimate ruler and controller of everything that happens. So this is kind of the mental picture that I got when I thought about this. He believes that God is like a good parent who, when their kids get sick, that parent gives them medicine. Whether that medicine tastes sweet or that medicine tastes bitter, a good parent is going to give their kids the exact medicine that they need. And different kids are going to need different medicines at different times, depending on the specific sickness that they have. So here's the way that Joseph is actually able to view his brother's sin against him as a bitter tasting medicine from the hand of God. And so he's actually able, instead of being mad at his brothers or being mad at God, he's actually able to say thank you to God, even for a very difficult circumstance that has caused him much suffering and much pain. And he's actually on the other side of that circumstance now, and he's able to see some of the good that God has brought from his pain and suffering. And I think the way that God wants us to see our current quarantined life is he wants us to see it like medicine. And our tendency is to be like little kids who don't like the bitter tasting medicine. And when God puts it in our mouth, we spit it out or we get mad at him or we get mad at somebody else. But what God wants you to do and he, what, what he wants me to do is he wants us to acknowledge, yeah, this medicine doesn't taste good. This medicine is bitter. The people that I live with are driving me crazy. I can't believe I can't leave my house or go to my job. I can't believe I can't get out of the situation that I'm in. I was just talking to one of my neighbors the other day, said, hey, how's it going today? You know, of course, from 14 feet away. And they said, well, we're living in the middle of a global pandemic, right? And we can acknowledge that these circumstances are not fun, that they're bitter, but we can also acknowledge that they come from the hand of a good God who has our best intention at heart. And because we believe even the sins that are being committed against us by the people that we live with are in the hands of God, and they are the medicine that God is giving to us for our good, we can actually be kind to the people around us. We cannot become embittered against God, we cannot become embittered against the people in our lives. We can actually say thank you. And what begins to be produced in our life 
instead of anger and resentment is kindness. And that's what we see in Joseph's life. And that's what I want to be true of my life. And that's what I want to be true of your life too. And all of this, guys, all of these things are anchored by the final thing I want to talk about, which is Joseph's hope. So Genesis 50, 24 through 26 talks about his hope. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph comes to the end of his life. God worked everything out for his good, and he's not facing just your ordinary run-of-the-mill suffering anymore. Instead, he's facing the greatest enemy of humanity. That's death. And he's staring death in the face. And he responds to his imminent death the same way that we saw him respond to his suffering throughout his life. He responds to his death, not by looking inside and feeling bad for himself, but by looking to God and his promises. And so here's what Joseph did that's very instructive to us. He takes God's promise and he makes it his own. And he believes it. So Genesis 15 verses 13 through 14, we saw this promise that God made to Abram. The text said, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So this is the promise that Joseph is latching onto. And the reason we know that he's latching onto it and that he's applying it to himself is in verse 25, he looks at his brothers and he says, swear to me that you're going to carry my bones out of Egypt. And so he attaches himself to this promise of God. The people of Israel are going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And he says, I'm wrapping my future around this promise that God has made to us. And I'm not just saying that he's made it to us. I'm saying, I believe that he's made it to me personally. And because he's made it to me personally, I can actually look into the future and I can see the people of Israel leaving Egypt and carrying my coffin out of Egypt. And so we say, he knew the promise of God. He attached that promise of God to himself. He made it personal. And then what we see 400 years later, a long time later, in Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones 
with you from here. And so here's what we get to see in the life of Joseph. We get this perspective on his life that we don't have on our own lives. We have this perspective that God made a promise. Joseph believed the promise, and then God did what he had promised. And so here's what I want you to remember. God keeps his promises. God has made us promises. And so here's what we have to do as a church right now. We have to believe those promises. We have to grab a hold of those promises and believe those promises for ourselves. And here's what we're going to see, maybe 400 years from now. God will do what he promised. We can bank our future on God. So here's a promise. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You want to have life in your current circumstance and forever? You want to experience a lack of anxiety and a lack of fear? Latch onto this promise. Yes, it's true. We will die. Maybe we'll die of coronavirus. Hopefully not. Maybe we'll die when we're 110 years old, like Joseph but we will die. And so what we do is instead of attaching our hope to our circumstances, we attach our hope to God. And we believe that eternal life is found in Christ Jesus now and forever. We believe that God will save us. Let's acknowledge this. We're living in a, a scary time. Things feel really uncertain. A lot of things that we used to be banking on that we thought were true, maybe aren't true anymore. And so we've got to dig into these promises, believe these promises, bank our life on the promises, and we will one day see God come through on his promise completely, and we will rejoice together forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have been present with us here this morning. Thank you that even though the world and its desires are passing away, that your word abides forever. And I pray that you would help us to bank our life on your promises, to believe your promises, to know that you are the sovereign God who controls everything, that you've given us sort of this bitter providence so that we would seek after you, so that we would be like branches who are attached to the vine and that we would produce fruit. God, would you produce that fruit in our lives of love and joy and peace and patience in a time of panic? And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.